thyself is dedicated to the exploration of the most rewarding task an individual can ever embark on, the journey to find oneself. Our intention is to investigate the universal principles that have equipped our species to seek the treasure of all treasures, self-knowledge. With your host, Daniel and Eduardo, this is the Know Thyself Podcast. Right, so welcome to the Know Thyself podcast. I'm here with Daniel. Hello, and I am Eduardo. And good morning, man. Good to see you. I'm very excited uh, to conclude this series on Pinocchio. Uh, who would have thought it would have been four episodes? You know, and there's a lot that we needed to say about this movie, right? Absolutely. And I think um, you know we're going to do our best to finalize this conversation today. But knowing that we could have gone forever talking about these subjects because it touches into so many other previous conversations that we've had on the podcast, as well as a really great precursor to what's coming in the future. Um, and so kind of a cool little transition period, I think, for us and a nice little space to explore a topic like this that kind of touches us on a personal level, but then kind of includes these bigger esoteric archetypes that we've been all exploring together these last couple of years. Absolutely. And you said it in the last episode, I believe, where you said this common language that we've created. And it's something that kind of keeps playing in my mind uh, throughout the breakdown of this movie. Uh, I know we've done other movies that we've broken down and, you know, we've been able to present these um, esoteric uh, not just like acknowledgements, but sort of this philosophical introduction to uh, archetypes in movies. But also, I think it's easy for you and I now to, you know, bring in such um, not just unknown factors, but more things we didn't consider maybe when we first got together to to break down this movie. Hence, why every episode has been just a a wonderful and lengthy conversation with you because. I have that opportunity and privilege to do that with you. Um, and I hope others can do the same when they converse about the esoteric or metaphysics or any topic that they might be interested in when they apply it to something that they've either already seen or something that's new to them, or if they've seen it already, but now see it with new a new set of eyes or perspective. And so without further ado, we will continue this conversation um, and wrap up this movie. And um, I don't want to... Um, you know, go back and do uh, a recap, but I know that we left off with Pinocchio and the understanding of his, um, not just his journey through death, but also how he cannot die. Um, and one day he may have to face death, ultimately, he's told, but for now, he's able to come back into life. And so Pinocchio just understood you know, the ability he had to lie, understood what it, what it caused. He understood he'd kind of made some mistakes, but more importantly, the people that are still alive are, you know, saddened that this boy is now gone. So I believe the next scene after everything we were talking about is Pinocchio waking up what seems to be sort of a doctor's office. I'm not really sure. Um, but the individuals that are surrounding him are everybody who has an interest for, you know, for Pinocchio or the, the interest that they've had for Pinocchio. And that is Podesta, who I believe hit Pinocchio. 
um, the fascist and, uh, you know, um, leader of, of that nationalist, um, group that we're talking about here, you know, especially with, with his involvement with the military, you have Volpe, Count Volpe, who's, you know, looking out for his star and looking out for the contract that was written. And then more importantly, you have, um, Geppetto, who's very concerned at this point that his son is gone. And I was telling you this before we recorded that I think it's interesting he finally has this and not that he didn't have an interest in Pinocchio and you know, but I think he was trying to figure out what's my relationship with Pinocchio? Is he my son? Is he you know, I am his creator, but this is where he really takes ownership of being his creator. Because everybody wants to get their hands on something that's so rare in our experience as human beings with, you know, not the ability to come back to life like the way he is that he has now, you know, basically reawakened, you know, everyone pretty much thinks he's gone. And when Pinocchio jumps right back into his physical body and opens his eyes to their surprise, I should say, or just like you're, you're alive. And so everybody immediately turns on this light in their head of just what can I do with this? You know, I think Podesta is very, very excited to know that if he's immortal or cannot be killed, this is an asset to the military Volpe, of course, is like, okay, I can still make money. And Geppetto is still sort of protecting Pinocchio and all of this opportunistic, you know, um, conversation that's happening all at the same time between many individuals who want a piece of Pinocchio. And so we can go from there um, if you want to and um, kind of explain what what um, follows next, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. We... We wake up with Pinocchio to have this experience of these characters where majority of them see him as a resource and they see him as some sort of asset. Um, you know, whether it's the entertainment, whether using in like a military fashion, but we can already see the, the pull that even the parent has between other factions other than just the home and the establishment of this child because the child always is going to be the representation of limitless potential. You know, we spoke about that with the story of Peter Pan and the idea of, you know, the role of the child is to be that limitless potential and how much kind of manipulation and coercion is actually put into place to try to, you know, steal that essence, steal that childhood essence to be able to, you know, harness it in their own personal selfish ways and the only one who is not looking to really create this in a selfish way is obviously going to be the guiding light of geppetto um but still you know kind of he is going to start to wrestle with that within himself as well because like why am i protecting this boy is it because i love this boy and he's also coming into this internal connection of you know to love this boy I'm going to have to heal my relationship with my last boy. And it kind of calls up a lot of emotional insight that Geppetto, I don't think, has up to this point has been able to face um, of, can I love again? You know, am I going to be able to be that individual that I was for Carlo? And there's, there's some internal tension that's kind of created. And, you know, it from this, from this kind of internal pressure and this external pressure that was put on that's going to result in internal pressure brewing within Geppetto, he 
he actually speaks in a way to Pinocchio that's very off character for him, um, which is going to be where we kind of take once he leaves this place, once he's kind of, once, you know, Pinocchio is told about all of his responsibilities that he has to own up to. You belong to the state. No, you belong to this contract. As they kind of escape from there, Geppetto has a heated conversation. And because it's a heated conversation, you know, stuff comes out of Geppetto that he's actually going to regret saying. But he says some very, you know, heavy things that Pinocchio is not only going to carry throughout the rest of the story, but it's actually going to affect his his consciousness. It's going to affect his ability to make decisions and even kind of lose some of this magical element that he brings to life and we're going to start to see him you know not only is he going to learn how to lie earlier on he's actually going to learn how to actually show anger later on as well and these are all experiences that had to be shown to him because remember in his his essence he was pure and that's why he was the representation of wood you know, remember, wood carries the essence of creation in it. When you feel a wooden table, we spoke about, you still feel the vibration of the tree. Well, the essence of the creator of that unconditioning, all-knowing love is still very much intact in Pinocchio, but we're starting to see the external events that happen that restrict our ability to show and share this love with others and actually makes us afraid to do it. And it actually turns when we can't show it as love, it gets expressed as fear. And we're going to kind of see that as Pinocchio kind of continues down this story and makes decisions not based on his soul, but more on what his, you know, new understood limited duty is that he thinks it is. And that's going to cause, um, you know, paying for all of the positive parties in the story that's going to kind of keep unfolding this, the remainder of this conversation. Well said, man. Way to capture all of that. Um, I know that, that we could go down its own rabbit hole of what that does psychologically to boys or even just children and their parents who they idolize so much. There is a separation period that happens to all of us where we go from idolizing our parents or are having approval from our parents because we're still in that state of wonderment to them having to discipline us, but not necessarily because we've made something or made a, 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 you know, a mistake or done something incorrectly to their, in their eyes, but more so you've startled them and woken up some kind of vulnerability within them that makes them have to be more stern with you. But really it stems from many places. And one that you just mentioned is fear. And we've talked a lot about that, you know, what that means when, you know, you come from a place of fear rather than a place of love, but sometimes the two kind of work hand in hand or have a parallel path. And I think with Geppetto, he's experiencing that where he's realized he almost lost the second opportunity to have a relationship with this, you know, child, which is what he already lost and mourned so much with Carlo. But at the same time, while Pinocchio did not die physically and comes back, it also reawakened this preciousness that he doesn't want to have to lose all over again. And not only does he not, does not want to lose it, Pinocchio coming back has sort of made Geppetto's journey a little more complicated, a little more complex, where the state uh, is very, um, you know, has its vested interest in Pinocchio, 
wanting him to, you know, partake in the military. Uh, the count says there's a contract, and if you want the boy back, you owe me this much money. There's a lot of weight that just kind of happened along with the same miracle of him coming back. So it's not so easy as, oh, I almost lost my son. Now we can go back and just, you know, skip our way back home and have a nice hot chocolate. It's like, okay, you're back. However, you're back with some consequences in my life now which is what's going to make Geppetto not necessarily resent Pinocchio, but kind of, like you said, express himself from a place of anger and maybe disappointment, which is what he tells Pinocchio. He tells Pinocchio, you're not Carlo. And he really is kind of speaking to himself in that scene. You know, he's not really, you know, this, this boy has already shown you not only endless love, but he'll do anything for you. And this is when you kind of hear what is maybe being internalized for Geppetto because he's never, he hasn't expressed that part. He does it sort of subtly where he's like, here's a book from Carlo. Here's, obviously I built you out of my misery of missing Carlo, but this is the first time he tells him like, you're not Carlo. You're not like him. Like he was not this disobedient. He wasn't this rambunctious, whatever. And that's where Pinocchio kind of has a, you know, just a different, um, a, not opinion for Geppetto, but sort of you see him perplexed again. He's just kind of like, well, I'm never going to be Carlo. Like, that's not me. And so Geppetto even takes it a little further and says something like you said, he was going to regret later on, but he calls Pinocchio a burden. And if you don't, didn't already remember, but in the, in the beginning of the movie, when Geppetto and Pinocchio go to bed, when they first have kind of met each other or one another and had this long day of discovering um, this relationship they have for one another, Sebastian explains to Pinocchio what a burden is. And he tells him, you know, it's a weight that you have to carry no matter how painful it is. And I don't think Pinocchio really understands that, but he also takes it with a lot of weight. So when Geppetto uses that word, he may think maybe this child doesn't know what a burden is to that extent, but he does. And he, and he it, it, to the point where it really shakes Pinocchio to where he's like, I need to make this right. Like if my father who loves me feels this anger towards me or feels this disturbed by my actions, I have to make a wrong right. And what do I need to do? Which again, I, like I said earlier, this is a classic tale of, you know, trying to live up to your parents' expectations, making decisions based on like getting that approval back. And that's something that we'll talk about a lot when we get into uh, more young and stuff. Uh, or, or, you know, even the individuals who study under Jung. I know I've talked about a few individuals who've worked with Carl Jung and it's time about, you know, um, boys without their fathers in essence, or just children without their, without their, their full approval of their parents and what that causes for people to make these like very bizarre decisions or take on paths that they didn't have to in order to fulfill this void. And so again, we won't go that deep into that. So the next day, um, Pinocchio makes it, oh, that, that night, I believe Pinocchio makes a decision to leave. And Sebastian says, you know, you, you don't have to leave. You don't. And he, he explains to Sebastian, he goes, no, this is what I've done. And this is what I need to do to make it right. And so he, I think he traps Sebastian under a piece of glass. And the next day, um, 
when Geppetto wakes up, Pinocchio is gone. And I think Geppetto wakes up with a lot of regret. You know, he needed sleep. He's been stressed. He's been, he's a human, right? He's been tired. He's been an honest emotional roller coaster of maybe losing his son, but also now his son's back and there's consequences that he, he needs to face. And so he tells Pinocchio in the morning, look about what I said, and he's gone. And all that's left is a note, which is just a son. <laughs> and, um, that's when Sebastian, I believe, scolds Geppetto and says, like, look, do you understand what you've done to, to this child? Do you understand what you said to this child yesterday? Like, you're a fool. You know, you really are a fool. You're a stubborn old man who wants something that, um, you know, he's not ever going to have back again. But you have a second chance here to sort of not only create a beautiful relationship with someone who loves you unconditionally, but, you know, something that you can do right and or do do better than you did before and and you see geppetto just sort of have this realization of like what have i done what have i said to this child and that's where the journey kind of takes off because you see that pinocchio is already not only long gone but he goes and knocks on the door of count volpe and that's where he starts his exchange between you know giving up himself in order to repent or in order to you know, get his father out of this debt that he has with the Count. Um, so if you want to just go from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, we were kind of seeing two different situations here because it's both Pinocchio and Geppetto have good intentions for what they're trying to do. And this is that perfect example that, you know, hell is paved with good intentions because, Pinocchio, in his limited understanding, now feels that there is a debt on his life. And we're kind of told, and this is a false thing that is actually imposed on all of us, that there's some sort of debt on our incarnation. Like in exoteric religion, we're told about this as the sin. Because Eve bit the apple, we're supposed to believe that this is we're paying the debt of life here, when there could be nothing further from the, co the course. The universal life force gave us life right. to expand the evolution of consciousness. This this isn't a debt. There's heaviness that comes in here, and there's lessons, but we don't owe anybody a debt, you know. And and Pinocchio is going to kind of see this that you know, Volpere doesn't own his soul. He owns his soul. It, who cares what that contract was written? He never actually had his soul. And we're going to even see this with like the state represented through the military fashion. The idea that the state says that we owe them a debt because they're like, oh, well, we protect you. So you owe us. You owe us your security. When in reality, yes. you know, what we're going to kind of get established is this idea of like, well, the only reason we have to create security is because you've attacked other people. You know what I mean? Like everybody we fear, even in the United States, if you kind of follow the timeline, well, we probably dropped the first bomb there. You know what I mean? And so there's this idea of like, well, not really. There's this, we really start to have to discover and create our own moral compass. And that's going to be the stage that Pinocchio is in, that we're going to kind of see this evolution where we have to separate from what the group and maybe what our society dictates as what is right or wrong and establishing our own personal relationship with this. It's not that easy. We can't learn this from an institution. We can't learn this from an exoteric religion. The path to finding right and wrong has to be a journey that you explore in yourself. And 
there's times that your your outside world is going to present something that is immoral, that does not align to natural law, and you're going to have to like step above this. And we're going to see this later on in the experience with the children during kind of that boot camp kind of situation they're having. But, you know, Geppetto doesn't need Pinocchio to pay his debts. Geppetto needs his son. Pinocchio doesn't need an individual to, you know, help him connect with the society and make sure he's like, you know, with all this pressure, Pinocchio needs a father. And so we see this in relationships between children and parent very often, where we make sacrifices for the wrong thing. You know, the the parent wants to give their child the child things they never had. You know, they want to allow them to be able to play maybe a a sports thing that's going to cost money. They want to make sure that they have their college education prepared. They they make all of these sacrifices of their time to give the financial support to the child. Well, the child really just needed a parent. You know, those things will come. Those things will kind of make their way. But we kind of push ourselves by these good intentions, but we lose connection to the whole reason why those two were brought together was to learn how to love in a new way. And so it's this unique kind of thing because Pinocchio, in order to try to serve his father in his limited, you know, unaware, unenlightened path, he has now chosen to sell his soul and he's going to now be that puppet that he was so free from. He was he was free from the strings. And he's actually going to put strings on himself because he thinks this is what's going to grate that, you know, that satisfaction or that approval from the parent. When when we really look deep down in Geppetto, Geppetto, he he doesn't want him to sell his soul. You know, he just wants that kind of connection. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of see just how this this even this like mistranslation that happens between the the parent and the child. And when really there's always good intentions a lot of times behind everything, but we don't know how to communicate together because we don't open up that language of love, establish it enough because we're, you know, so busy in the circus, um, that we miss just the idea that they really just needed to, you know, look at each other and tell them each other how much they love each other. And that would have been the satisfaction that kind of comes from this. But this lack of saying these things that we think are known are going to cause this, you know, this this darker part of the hero's journey to kind of begin for the both of them. And they're both going to be disconnected. The father is going to be disconnected from the son. And that's going to obviously have, you know, biblical and mythological roots in that conversation right there that we'll really explore when they kind of come back together in the belly of the beast later on in the story. But just the idea that, you know, we, this idea that we have to pay this debt back for our existence when there could be nothing further from the truth. Yeah. Like I said, this, this, the separation you brought up already in this, in this, what you just said with the biblical reference is is major, you know. And I think it's interesting that throughout the film, they speed this process up. You know, this is like the first time you see um, sort of a montage uh, that they put together, which is uh, Geppetto looking for Pinocchio with nothing but sorrow in his eyes, and Pinocchio working really hard not only to hopefully pay off the debt but also um 
you know, he's getting the praise that he's that he's always wanted, but he's getting a taste for what that costs. So even though he knows, okay, I'm doing this to pay off this debt, and I'm on my own finally. Like, say there was no debt to pay, and say he was to get um, a taste for what it's like to have fame and attention. He's realizing this is very taxing. He's realizing this is never ending. This is, you know, yeah, there's the praise of the towns that he goes through as you see this timeline of a map where they're going, I think, down the southern coast of Italy. But every time that he's done, you know, with the show, there's always this um, this image of the money that's coming in. And in the background, it's just him sort of waving at the kids who are giving him praise. But you see the next scene after the next scene, that's becoming less and less important to Pinocchio. And he more or less just misses his father. And every time that his father is looking for him and sort of, you know, takes a moment to sort of you know, realize the mistake he's made. You see Pinocchio's also having this realization of this is fun, but it's it's met with just emptiness. And I guess this is, you know, maybe his way of realizing it's not all about the praise and someone else is benefiting from this. And that's obviously the count. And even then you kind of see these like very interesting scenes in the background of of the monkey, you know, not necessarily not hating Pinocchio anymore, but kind of realizing like this kid's got everything that he's got to give and he's being taken advantage of. And I've been taken advantage of. And it's interesting because I didn't see this in the it, happening in the movie when I saw it the first time. I mean, I saw it happening, but I didn't, I didn't know this was going to be an occurrence here in this movie where there's this, you know, softening of this chimp who's like, I already did all this. My soul is basically already drained out from this individual who's taking what we are able to give to the world. And you kind of see like a turn um, when I think Pinocchio uh, says, you know, I'm glad we're making all this money, you know, is my side of, of, of the contract, you know, being fulfilled? Am I getting what I'm putting into this? And he's like, sure, sure, sure. And then he takes out all these taxes. The count takes all this money to himself. And that's kind of where you see the the shift in the monkey kind of realizing like, you're just going to suck this kid dry. And so that's kind of like the timeline that they, that they show you throughout the separation between Geppetto looking for Pinocchio and going, you know, as far as you can go. Because again, the map shows you how far Pinocchio is having to travel. And Geppetto is just like, one step behind him and so there's this you know need for you to feel that separation between the two and the worry that geppetto has for his son you know he's really coming into his own realizing like i'll do anything for this opportunity to have him back like i don't care if it costs me all my money i don't care if it takes me up and down i don't care if it takes me across oceans that are gonna pose this danger i'm willing to do anything to get my son back. And so, yeah, we can kind of go from there because that's sort of, I guess, like I said, they, they sort of speed up this process that Geppetto finds himself at a dock with some very like interesting uh, captain of a boat that tells him like the seas out there are, are riddled with like danger and, and monsters that you can't imagine. And that's when Geppetto's like, I don't care. Like whatever it takes, I need to get over to this other side of, of the water. What can I do to to make that happen. You know, he's like, all I have in the world is, I think it's got like a few coins in his hand. He goes, but this is, this is it. Like I take it. 
Like, I just want Pinocchio back. And at the same time, while he's doing that, Pinocchio is consistently rehearsing for, I think, is going to be like the biggest show for the Count as far as him putting on a show for, for Mussolini. And Pinocchio is just exhausted. He's just like, finally, like, hey, like, I only have so much of this energy and I've given you a lot, but like, I, I just don't have it anymore or I don't have it just right now. And while he's having that conversation, once again, the monkey is watching this exchange and I think he starts to sort of talk to Pinocchio through the puppets. He starts to tell Pinocchio like, hey, like, um, you, you know, you don't need to do this. Like, what are you doing? You know, he's just going to take everything you have. You're going to, you're basically like, this is no place for a child. Like you shouldn't be here anymore, which is the first time you see the monkey kind of look out for Pinocchio. So again, I know I unfolded a lot, but that's literally what happens in like pretty much the unfolding of this process between the separation of the father and the son in this scene. And then where Geppetto is in this timeline and where Pinocchio is in his journey um, on this like you know, moving show. You know, I think this is a great indication too of the the journey to look for our father in the external world and the idea of going traveling looking for this peace, going traveling and leaving leaving that inner father, leaving the inner temple and going out into the world and trying to find what it is that only can be found on the inside through the the balancing and the connection of these energies that are being represented here. And it shows just the the drainage that kind of comes with it with even Pinocchio, because he is, he's getting exhausted because there's no connection back to that, you know, universal life force to recharge him. And he's just seeking and seeking. And this is such a good lesson for all of the spiritual students. You know, we get through this process where we start getting into the esoteric and the occult, and we just want to read every book, read, 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 read. But we don't sit and actually sit with the information. We don't meditate with it. We don't actually work and actually add these processes to our life. It's just like this external accumulation of knowledge. And and just the just the separternal aspect of how that's just going to drain us and, and lead us further and further from where we what we're actually searching for, searching for and what we're actually seeking. And so we have this unique component of Pinocchio now trying to find purpose in the external and trying to justify, you know, being a puppet for somebody else because he's he is it's not even just him singing songs anymore that have like a fairy tale notion to it. He's actually a mouthpiece for propaganda and he's now actually spreading hate and spreading fear and spreading these things that are going to have like a negative influence on the children that he's even trying to get connected to. And this is a, I think this is a common allegory for a lot of the things that happen today in that industry. You know, there's, it's really interesting to watch celebrities get interviewed about some of these social issues that they stand so strong for because they almost look like they're being held hostage when they're doing it. Like they're speaking about these statements and they're making these radical statements, but they're always like looking off to the camera, like somebody is watching them, making sure that they say the dialogue that the Matrix wants them to say. And we're, we can kind of see this, how this 
you know, entertainment is used as a puppet to push some of these nefarious things, like the celebration of Mussolini, who was, you know, a historical turd piece. And so we can kind of like watch how this kind of happens and how even the innocent are used to push and become agents of the matrix um, and just how damaging and destructive that is. And, you know, that connection with the, um, with the monkey again, and what was you, you do such a better name of pronouncing his name. How do you pronounce his name again? So it's Pazaturo. He's going to represent this, this animal nature that actually is empowered by the lower ego earlier on in the process. And the lower ego actually uses this animal nature to kind of like attack the essences of this higher conscious and the spiritual self coming through and it blocks it and it makes it feel silly about it, tells it it's going to be isolated. It tells it that people are going to think it's weird. It's going to use all of its emotional and mental programming to try to block the, the flourishing of this, you know, internal, you know, internal flower that is self unfoldment. And what happens is, just like through this process, that animal nature kind of turns online to the tyrant and who actually is the tyrant and who actually is the true king. And it can kind of start to see that, you know, there's only purity in the higher self. There is no fear. There's no tyrant. There's no, there's no pain that comes from it. It's just love and understanding and forgiveness. It doesn't even hold grudges. And so it starts to tap into this energy. And this is really who we kind of have to incorporate into ourselves. This is why we go into the shadow to explore the dark parts of our consciousness. So these animal instincts don't work against us, but they can actually support us. And we actually become the master of them. And they, and they, we can actually start utilizing this energy as, you know, instead of like fear and destruction, well, it becomes courage and virtue. You know, we really start to take this and raise them up the octaves. And we really are watching this character go, go get raised up the octaves to be at the end. He's going to play, play one of the biggest role in saving Pinocchio. And that's exactly what kind of comes in here to really kind of help push out the lower ego, well, we need all of the energy we possibly can incorporate on our side. And this is what's going to happen. He's he's turning online slowly but surely, and we're going to kind of see the ramifications through this new use of this consciousness. And that left eye, which was represented as foggy earlier, is going to be kind of start to come become clean and clear to show that the thoughts, the emotions, and the actions are actually in alignment. Well said, man. Well said. Um, yeah, he plays a very interesting um, role in this movie that, d- that Del Toro decided to really uh, incorporate. I know that Del Toro has brought a lot of different elements to the movie, um, but no, there's none like the way that, I, I mean, for me at least, I didn't think this was going to be uh, you know, a main character. I thought it was just sort of something that was going to be in the background, but... You know the character of uh, Spazatura is is coming more and more to life, uh, kind of standing up for himself and giving another chance to to have Pinocchio realize the mistake he's making that he already made himself. And uh, I think he the next scene that I wanted to you know kind of keep going with in that regard is that because Sebastian is now with 
Geppetto, you know, Pinocchio is making decisions for himself in a different way now. He doesn't have that level of consciousness sort of guiding him now of what's right and wrong. He's having to figure out what's right and wrong for himself. And Spazzatura sort of helps him out with that. Spazzatura realizes, like, if no one says anything to this boy, um, it's just going to, he's just going to basically work himself to death. And when Spazzatura finally tells Pinocchio, like, this is who you're working for, and this is how it's going to end, uh, the Count sort of eavesdrops on that conversation, and the Count decides to really take a beating on you know, Spazzatura really shows his, his side of himself as abusive and Pinocchio witnesses that and Spazzatura, I believe, is casted out and I think uh, the Count sort of tells him like, you know, you're nothing but a, an animal, like you're nothing but, you know, a rodent that I found that was basically almost dead and if it wasn't for me, you know, you wouldn't be here. So Spazzatura decides to sort of sabotage this great show with Pinocchio and Pinocchio agrees to it because Pinocchio realizes like this guy's just in it for himself. There's nothing that's ever going to come of this with me. The debt that my father has to this man won't ever be repaid, you know? So a, a lot of things happen in, in those scenes where you see Pinocchio taking ownership of not necessarily his soul and his talent, but also the whole picture, you know, he realizes like this is, this is extremely not only deceiving and dark, but it's also not why, what I intended ever to have happen to me in my life. And I think that's a very important lesson that we all have to go through. You know, some people will say, I've been jaded before. Or they'll say, I've been, you know, um, I've been down this path before. But, you know, you and I have talked about this in regards to even the stages of alchemy where, you know, to come up to the next octave, you have to reach this level of darkness on your own. Unfortunately, there's no one there for you. You know, your mom and father or your or whoever your your role models are, whoever your, your family is that you associate to may be around in close proximity physically, but emotionally, you're having to go through this by yourself. And even if you tell friends about what you're going through, they can lend an ear, but they're not, they're, they're not able to like help you come out of that you know, it's you who has to kind of go through that. Um, and, and again, we've talked about this multiple times, but that's something that you're seeing here with Pinocchio finally is that he realizes, yes, I'm, you know, he's still a child, obviously he still has the essence of a child, but there's something he's having to grow into very quickly. And it's like, if I don't stick up for myself, if I don't make my way out of here, it's not going to end, you know, very well for me. And so that's the turning point I believe is when they finally come across the final show, and I don't even know it's the final show, but it's the biggest show. It's the most pressure he has from the count to perform. And yeah, he basically <laughs> shits all over that. <laughs> Quite literally, you know, he sort of turns it uh, against him, you know, um, and everybody's giving praise to, to uh, Mussolini as their leader. And here's the opportunity for the count to sort of show, um, his worth because there's a couple of moments where you kind of see the count's uh, insecurities also, you know, there's, there's a lot of moments where you see that he's a very um, uh, secured individual in his position on how he can manipulate people. But you can also see that he needs his own kind of praise. He needs his own kind of validation. And he kind of, I think he shows Pinocchio uh, sort of like a photo album of 
all the times he's been with Mussolini, but Mussolini's not in the photo at all. It's like super far in the background. He's like, that's me and him again. And like, we go way back. And really you kind of start seeing how the wheels are turning in his head. Like, this is my big break. So he's also constantly change, chasing that opportunity, even as an older man of like, when will I have my big break? When will I have my big break? So again, he's he's putting that pressure onto Pinocchio, which we talked about with the whole idea of, you know, the older adult male or female who does this to children in order to have that essence that they might've lost back into their life of approval or their own, um, you know, need for, for being the star. And so, um, yeah, so, so Pinocchio performs and, you know, that goes, that goes completely unexpected for, for the count and both the monkey Spazzatura and Pinocchio work together to sabotage this moment for him. Um, and I believe this is where Pinocchio is shot and killed, um, by one of the soldiers. Yeah. And you know, and we can see this idea of this cycle and pattern if we don't find validation in ourselves, we're always looking for external validation. Um, the count, obviously, we can look at this as a cycle and pattern that he might have not had validation or approval from his own father. And so now he's trying to find this in father figures outside of himself, rather than actually connecting and finding his own purpose. It's it's used for all of, did I do well? Am I doing okay? And this is such a dangerous thing when we need to we will go on a lifelong journey of drinking sand if we look for our validations in others. That's not just our romantic relationships. That's our career. That's our parents. You know, we can't find that in others. The only time we can be a good son, the only time we could be a good husband or wife or daughter or whatever your role is, is when you actually have that internal validation and that internal security to be able to be like, no, I'm doing what my soul's path is. And we're seeing this, the, the dangers of this with this and this, this pattern kind of just, just kind of completing. And so, um, you know, it's, it's kind of like the idea when we think about the wood and the trees, when a tree is blossoming, it doesn't look at a tree next to it and ask if it's doing a good job. It just authentically blossoms and it pushes out its branches in the way that its code and its seed was written. And that's what we all have to do. We all have to look at the authentic unfolding of who we are, not so much worried about the validation from a father figure or the validation that we're doing better than the neighbor next to us. But it's got to be this internal satisfaction. And that's the only way that peace is ever going to be obtained. It's never going to be found on this external journey in the outside world. It's always got to be fortified and connected to within. And, and that's a process that we see in the damages of how that's going to pull the count to create evil and, you know, not be able to even find his own satisfaction. So you're right. We, we have Pinocchio. He puts on a show and he kind of utilizes the count's show against him and shows him just actually how silly his show was the entire time and how it was just a puppet show. And it really takes away the significance of that. And it shows the count for what he is. You know, Pinocchio didn't really say anything other than the truth when he was actually talking about that, when he was speaking about Mussolini or the count. Because again, you know, when he's talking about Mussolini, we notice that his nose isn't growing. 
Like when he's talking about Mussolini kind of just being an accident in his pants, like Pinocchio's nose isn't growing. He actually believes this. Like he sees the the facade of this individual and he sees the mirage of a man who thinks he's a man, but he's really just a man because he controls other people. And that's actually a very weak man. And we're going to kind of see this happen. And so you're right. He, he, he has a, a dance with destiny. He is shot by one of the soldiers and he's awoken, which is interesting from a death to a soldier. And he's awoken and reborn as a soldier which is really a unique kind of pattern that's kind of created there because when he wakes up, he's actually in the, the, like the cargo with other children his age and uh, that fascist figure. He has that exchange that's kind of profound with, um, with death. So he dies and he actually is celebrating death. He, he, it's very short, but it's, it's, it's more intentional this time. Every time he dies, obviously, he ends up in the same realm where, you know, he's met with this hourglass uh, that he has to sort of wait for it to empty in order to come back to this physical realm. But this time around, he celebrates that he's died and he's actually excited that he's like, look at my power. He goes, I've been shot at, I've been run over, I've been this, I've been that, and I can come back as many times as I want. This is wonderful. And when Pinocchio is telling, um, you know, this keeper of, of souls in death, um, death has, happening, has happened to him one more time. This time she says to Pinocchio, you know, it's a terrible burden that you actually live the way you do. And he doesn't like that. He looks at her and he's like, that's a terrible thing to say to a boy. She's like, the way I see it, you know, with eternal life comes eternal suffering. And he's kind of like, you know, sort of perplexed by this. He's like, wait a minute. Like, what do you mean by that? You know, like how, how do you, um, how do you see it this way? And he goes, you you know, she says your friends, your loved ones, um, they don't get to do this. Every moment you share with them, maybe the very last. And that's the first time he kind of has this idea of what it means to have, you know, she says, you don't know how long you have um, with them, you know? So he says to her, um, can you tell me more right as the sand, like, you know, sort of the last grain goes through the hourglass and he wakes up and that's when he wakes up in the truck. So this time when he wakes up, he's not necessarily you know, just excited to see his papa, but he's kind of perplexed with everything she just dropped on him. You know, it's like, hey, you know, you see it this way, but the way I see it, you might continue on, but those you love that you can't wait to see again, they're not going to be there all the time. And not only does he is he left with that, he wakes up in, in this military vehicle that you were about to, you know, um, start speaking about. So let's go from there. Yeah, no, and I'm so glad you you brought up that that death scene again. And I think a great connection for us to think about on the spiritual path is the space that he spends in the in between, like in this right. holding area, in this purgatory almost it kind of feels like in that death scene very much is resembles the dreamscape for us and how the dreamscape operates and even when we're like sometimes in that mode of even kind of becoming aware and we've almost like encounter some really big information, you know, like I've, I, I can't talk about myself here, but like, you know, there's could be a time when you're dreaming and it's just like, oh, well, your goal here is to do your purpose. And then you're like, well, what's my purpose? And then all of a sudden, like the angel is speaking to you, but the wind goes by 
And you're like, no, I didn't hear you. What's my purpose? And it's like, your purpose is, and it just goes by because it can't be as linear and logical as, as we want it to do. And I think that really even helps us with this understanding of how the dreamscape works in our spiritual discovery. And, you know, that's what we explore in the 12th house a lot, or maybe even the fourth house. If there's, um, you know, family archetypal patterns that are making themselves present when we're looking at the natal chart, but the dreamscape is, is a real reality that we experience, you know, and I think that Carl Jung did a really great job about that because even in his conversations, he would be talking about individuals that he was working with and be talking about a dream they had. And so they're like, so they imagine this situation in their dream. Like it was their, you know, it was a fantasy thing that they were experiencing. And he's just like, no, it was just as real as this world is to you. And that's a unique thing to start to uncover too, that we perceive this world as the linear and the concrete. But the truth is, is, we're just as alive in that next realm and there's just as much information to kind of take in. But again, it presents itself in a little bit more of an abstract inverted kind of way. Um, but I thought that was just very relatable as we kind of think about the spiritual development. And even as we kind of wake up the spinal cord, we, we turn online the pineal gland, we usually have more of a personal experience within that dreamscape that leads to further self-discovery that um, should not be overlooked um, or, um, you know, overshadowed on. And so I want to just kind of touch on that because I love that you brought that point up. Yeah, this is, uh, again, you know, nothing, you know, in making a movie, I always love that. Even when, when any writer, you know, any, any creator for that fact, when they play something you know, during the story or the unfolding of a story or the unfolding of a philosophy, you know, it takes a lot of work to sort of make this up and down process make sense between, you know, some some acknowledgments, some sort of revelation. And so when you're watching a movie, I always like to not, you know, analyze every second, but some scenes are there very specifically placed for you to sort of have this moment with the character that's, you know, in this case, Pinocchio to sort of understand like the perplexing duality that he may be facing. And so I'm glad you're bringing up this idea of the dreamscape because you're absolutely right. I love that you say that that when you're looking for your purpose, it doesn't lend itself that easily. And that's the same thing that happens to him right before he Mm -hmm. awakens into his physical body. He's kind of like, wait a minute, tell me more about this. Like I need to learn what, what you're basically describing, which is, you know, how finite, you know, how fragile life is. And so, um, yeah. And then another thing I wanted to bring up, and I, and I know that we'll conclude with this in the whole overarching theme of, of the of the tale of Pinocchio, but, you know, there's a lot of little documentaries I've watched prior to this movie um, where directors will admit when they made a movie how they have their own experience as a child um, and their experience with maybe a parent and what it led them to do with a lot of uh, films. And I know one of those individuals is Steven Spielberg. He talks a lot about his movies until you watch them again. You realize there's always this child trying to um, either make up for the loss of a father or make up for the lack of a father in the home. And that's something that happened to Spielberg. And he puts that in other movies like an E.T. There's always like some kind of like child who doesn't have a father so much in the in the role and the kids maybe younger and he's trying to prove himself but 
to not get away from this movie, when Pinocchio wakes up into this truck, there's a scene where he realizes I'm back and Podesta shows admiration for Pinocchio. He goes, yes. He goes, you are, you have the potential to die and come back to life, which makes you the ideal soldier. If you learn to obey and you learn to take um, orders, nothing nothing will keep you from being a hero. And then the scene in that that's happening, the camera sort of pans into Podesta's son, who's looking up at Podesta with this like sort of, you know, de- desperation of like approval from his own father of like, you know, I'm never going to be good enough for you. Like here I'm, I'm realizing like, how can I compete with this, this wooden, you know, uh, child who can actually come and go as he pleases in, in these two realms you're describing that's the perfect soldier. Like I want to be the perfect soldier for you, you know? Um, and I think that that's very, what I was going with the whole idea of directors and what they put into movies. This is another moment where you're seeing that relationship between father and son. You know, you see it with Geppetto and Pinocchio, but you see it also with Podesta. And I believe the son, the son's name is Candlewick. And, um, and so, yeah, so they go into the boys camp. They, they're, they're going in for, I think it's military training, right? I like that you brought up the name Candlewick because this, this individual is going to be very much a representation of that Luciferian archetype, um, the light bringer, and the idea of actually going against his father to bring down the light of creation. It's the idea of going against the false false father and actually bringing the light of true creation down. And he's going to do this when he establishes his own moral compass later on. So he plays you know, such a big character for such little airtime that kind of gets displayed in this. But we do, we see this this competition element come out. And so we're, we're starting to see all of these unique things that we were introduced to as children that we didn't notice, that we just think is like this natural element that was always a part of us. No, we, we had to have these experiences to be able to like even view what competition even was. But Candlewick and Pinocchio are kind of placed against each other um, and placed in this opposition role, which we're going to kind of see that like their, you know, their brotherhood transcends. And I think that there's a, there's a really, you know, powerful part because this del Toro took quite the, you know, the turn of events here. This is in all of the other stories. This is more seen as a desire satisfaction way for the donkey or the animal and man to find its expression. The children in the other stories go more to like a Las Vegas situation to show that like animalistic nature. And what we're going to see here is just a different side of that coin. Sometimes that animal nature isn't just in sensation, but sometimes it's in domination and the idea of becoming like physically more powerful in, you know, might is right kind of situation and transcending any kind of deeper thought about something. And let's just kind of use our muscle and this, this like blind, you know, like this blind direction to, to using force to kind of creating this cookie cutter state, you know, where no, there's no individual. It was like the death of the individual that kind of comes here. And the, again, we kind of see a shortcut. Pleasure Island was a shortcut in sensation where you didn't do anything to be able to gain those positive sensations. It was, 
It was too easy. There was a shortcut. Well, the same thing kind of happens with discipline and strength. You can't take a shortcut here. You can't become strong by letting somebody tell you what strength is. That's something you have to discover in yourself. And taking somebody's word for like what is right or wrong or accepting somebody else's moral compass, like we kind of find in like a, you know, a military situation like that can be very damaging. Because, you know, the universe needs you to decide what's right or wrong independently, apart from the group think. Um, and so we, we have this like unique kind of role, but there's a, there's a really powerful moment when they're all in bed after like their first day of training. And Pinocchio's bed yeah. is actually numbered number nine. Um, which is that esoteric number of the complete man. And so we can kind of show like there's this, there's this evolution that's kind of gone through. Numbers are not shown very often in this movie. There is really no reason to put the numbers on the bed. It's not really addressed in the story. So we know that there's some kind of esoteric significance there. But there's a, there's a really telling scene here when him and Candlewick are talking and they're both trying to one up each other with this like synthetic bravery that has kind of been um, superficially imposed on them. And he makes the comment that I love war and his nose doesn't grow to show that he actually does love war. Like we're, we've actually like accepted these violent notions and we're allowing these violent desires to kind of work within us in a very selfish kind of way. Um, not in a way of like protecting other people and protecting the evolution of consciousness, but it's, it's this like selfish damaging way. And we can kind of see the destruction and he truly does. He loves war and it's something that he like truly believes. And this only comes from, you know, he only loves war because he was rejected from his society. He only loves war because he feels like he's a burden of his father. He only loves war because he thinks he's all alone on his journey. And so we can kind of see, you know, if a, if a child does not feel the warmth of a village, he's going to use that fire to burn it down. And we can see the ramifications of these violent tendencies that come out of adults is all because of a causal factor that they didn't gain this, you know, the spiritual, emotional, or get the spiritual, emotional attention earlier on in their fundamental years. And now it's expressing out of this idea as, I love war. Well, anybody who's actually been in war knows that nobody loves war. And only the people that kill are the ones that are going to be afraid to die. Um, and so it's this, you know, it's kind of this sick cycle of the cube that we're seeing um, him attach himself to this lower vibrational pattern of fear and domination that is just not the right path, but the easier path. And that's something Pinocchio has to learn is there is no shortcuts in this way of, you know, spiritual liberation. Everything has to be examined um, and everything has to put into the context of like, well, what's my role in this personal experience that I find myself in? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, he's just jumping into another and, and well said, man, because it's true. His nose does not grow uh, in that moment where he truly believes he loves war. But if his nose isn't growing, it just shows that the tremendous ignorance he has for what he's embarking on. All he knows is there's a new person who's still the same. In this case, Podesta is the count telling him, you know, you will be a hero. You will have praise yet again. And so he's once you know, he's already made a mistake with Podesta 
and under, or with uh, the count and giving up his energy and giving up his his universal life force for someone else he's doing it all over again you know he realizes like maybe this is the this is the place where i fit in you know there's a lot of boys here they all seem to kind of like me now we're all in this together and one of the things that you start to see between pinocchio and candlewick in that scene at night is candlewick goes from i'm no coward i'm not afraid of war and then he says something as he rolls away from Pinocchio. He says, this is, um, I'll, I'll show him. And now he's talking about his father, Candlewick. He says, I'll show him. And then, then he'll like me. And Pinocchio is already tucked into his bed. And he stops and turns his head really slowly. Because he's kind of like, um, you know, kind of perplexed by that statement. And he says, you know, all fathers love their sons. And... Um, you notice that Candlewick turns over to Pinocchio to say, you know, um, he's got tears in his eyes and he says, and they only say things that they only think they mean, um, you know, when they're upset, but with time they learn that they never really meant it at all. So he's had this like self-realization, a very profound realization that, hey, I know that fathers say ugly things and you can be a, called a burden and a coward, but deep inside your father loves you. And Candlewick really starts to cry and kind of show once again that he's just a boy. You know, he's a boy seeking approval of his father, and they both are. But that's kind of where they find this bond. You know, he says, um, you know, I'm not afraid. And Candlewick looks at him, he goes, you know, what's it like to die? And he goes, yeah, there's these rabbits playing card games, and there's this blue sand. And Candlewick kind of sits upright, and they start to kind of become children again, even though like right outside or I think hostile uh, airplanes, they say, you know, flying overhead. Um, and Candlewick finally looks at Pinocchio and says, you know, I'm really glad you're here because Candlewick on his own journey hasn't had this already experience that Pinocchio's had of losing his father, losing the approval of his father, making up to for the loss of not having his father, going through the journey of being used. He's He's sort of already been through so much in such a short span of time that he's able to sort of help another boy who's just as lost on this path and is only doing this for the gains of the approval of his own father. And so it's a very interesting exchange between two young children who are helping each other out in, in a very, um, kind of a very dire time, you know, I mean, war is just like right outside their door. And, you know, again, you notice that they don't know exactly what they're in for, but they know they're there together and they know they're there for something glorious is what they've been told. Um, so it's just a, it's a very touching moment. I thought, because again, you already mentioned this and we always try to have these episodes where we not only break down the movies and the lessons that are in the movies, but also making relatable points, you know, and using our examples on our own journeys to go through that. And I've said this before on the podcast, you know, I, I have had my, my ups and my downs in my life, but I definitely can relate to all of that in that scene. Like I know everybody's going to have their moment in movies or in stories where they kind of connect to that. But I definitely have had this whole idea of if I just do this one thing, then I can gain the approval of the collective and then I'll have worth. And the truth is no matter what you do, whether it's a degree, you know, a piece of paper that is given to you or a job position that's given to you, you're never done chasing that if you don't go all the way inside like Pinocchio has already and realize like, no, like I need to be at peace with myself. I need to be at peace with what makes not just me happy, but what makes me feel 
fulfilled ultimately. Otherwise I'll keep putting it in other things. And you know, it might be the circus and it might be the military, but it'll never end if you don't really just have this, this realization. So anyways, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's the same circus with just different music there, but it all is just round and round and round to go, you know, the ups and the downs. And so, so yeah, I think that that's so important. And, you know, also what we see with a this connection with Pinocchio is this establishment and this creation of empathy and the idea of seeing himself in others, which is so important when we think about the idea of negative thought patterns you know, we might not know how damaging our negative thought patterns are, but then when we see a, a good friend of ours have that negative thought pattern of starting to speak bad about themselves, we stop them immediately. And we're like, hey, don't think about yourself that way. That's a very toxic way to do that. And then we kind of reflect on ourselves and we're like, oh, but I do that. And so there's there's actually this, this unique arena that opens up in one-on-one -on -one relationships where we learn about ourselves through the process of connecting to others. And we find that although we are all on our own independent journey, there's, there's similar experiences. You know, he felt closer. There was a brotherhood that was formed that both of these boys felt like they weren't living up to their, um, to the, um, you know, desires of their parents and they felt inferior. And so they were able to kind of blend over this and kind of make a unique brotherhood and a unique connection. And we're able to see each other and be that support and how important that is on our journey to find individuals that we get supported with. You know, again, they can't roll for it. They can't paddle our boats for us, but it, it sure is nice having, you know, partners in this experience and brothers and sisters on the journey home together. And so we have this like wonderful kind of connection where they really do kind of come together on a higher level where they're able to transcend fear through the love of one another. Um, and it's the complete opposite of what's happening in the collective at that time, because the brothers outside of that wall are dropping bombs on each other because they have different flags on their uniform, complete isolation and divorce from the idea of empathy and understanding that other people feel, think, and have incarnation in this animated personal experience like you do. And so we do, we kind of have this unique space where they, they make that connection in the bed and then there's you know, military games that happen. And I don't know if we really need to go into too much of this, but even that brotherhood kind of transcends that moment. Um, I don't know if you wanted to go into too much detail, but I think it's probably more important to kind of like. No, there's just one scene that I thought was very dark and, and ominous is that you, you're right. The brotherhood, the connection, they have a real connection, but I think you needed to see that in order to let them realize that there is no you know, flag that can divide them because I think they both go to play capture the flag and they both get to the top at the same time. And it's Podesta, the father of Candlewick, who basically decides to sever that. He's like, no, there is no tie in war. You can't do that. You can't just both have a laugh and go, hey, we both got here at the same time. So he, his job is to really make sure that he keeps that separation between you know, that, that bond of your enemy and so much to where he picks up a, a real gun from his, I think is his own real gun. And he gives it to his child Candlewick, who again, we know is gaining or wanting to gain the approval of his father, Podesta. And Podesta's like, all right, if you really think you're ready for war, you can kill him. 
And he's like, wait, this is a real gun. And he's like, I know. And of course, Podesta knows that Pinocchio can come back to life, but this is sort of this initiation, sort of rite of passage that's very heavy onto a child to be like, yeah, okay, you want my approval? Like, let's see how far you can go in order to prove yourself that you're not only my son, but you're a man. And Candlewick's just like, this doesn't feel right. Like what you're doing is is just plain twisted. And I think that's where you have to learn that separation of like, you can't, you can't always go after, this is his moment of realizing even your own father can be not only wrong, but what you feel inside is what should, you know, override the logic of an individual who's not connected to something greater. You know, you can't just let that be, you can't let someone else tell you what to do. Which again is what you see in, and I don't want to get too, you know, into the whole idea of military and what they have you do and kill for, for others agendas. But that's the conflict you see right there with Candlewick. He's just like, I have no reason to kill him. Um, which is very interesting because, you know, Candlewick then finally right. stands up to his father and he, and he says something to him. He goes, you know, maybe I am weak. Maybe I am frail. You know, but this is who I am. And then he finally says it, you know, he goes, you are weak and you're not my son. And that's the complete separation of those two, because then Candlewick shoots his father with like a paintball gun. And I think that's where Podesta finds himself um, entangled in some ropes. The bombs are dropped by the enemy. Podesta dies and Pinocchio is launched off way into the air and lands on the side of a cliff. And we can kind of like start that separation, that journey uh, for Pinocchio now uh, on what he's got to do to take this next leap um, into the unknown. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we're really ending up, and I really feel like this episode is really building up to this this last big archetypal story um, that is, I think, the meat and the potatoes of this episode. And we... You know, when we see Candlewick there, he's really going through the ritual of the cremation of care and the idea that his father was trying to get him to kill the heart because you can't operate as a human with just the skull and the bones, right. as I think, so I act. And you can actually kill that feeling factor. And not only do we see, you know, Candlewick deny that ritual of killing his heart and killing the sacred feminine within himself, we see Pinocchio actually like you know, fly and land into a spot where we meet an individual who picks him up that has been through the cremation of care, who has burned that inner child within themselves, who has burnt that sacredness, and now is looking to burn it in the world. Um, and we see that throughout all of this. Once, once somebody loses connection with their heart, it, 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 bothers them so much to see love and unconditional love in the sacred feminine that they do whatever they can to destroy it um, and taint what that essence is that we all feel internally into ourselves. And so Pinocchio is, he's actually like strapped up on a cross getting ready for a crucifixion um, where the count has actually like now enclosed him and he's going to burn him alive, which is actually going to release any form of his body coming back. And so we actually have this like true fear yep. of death here because if Pinocchio loses the vehicle, he will lose the ability to actually have that housing unit back in this reality. 
Um, and so, you know, kind of fascinating because it's a heightened situation here. And I don't know if you want to kind of talk about it, but we, we have a, the hero that we didn't expect that's going to kind of come out to, to save the day for Pinocchio. Oh yeah. Well, this is, I think when, you know, I, I totally, you're absolutely right. The, the, what you said about the vessel. So true, man. I, I didn't even think about that, that if he did burn, that would be the end of him. That literally would be the end of him. It's just, you know, you can be mangled, but you know, once he's just ashes, there's nothing to come back to. And, uh, I, yeah, I believe he, he starts to burn the, you know, basically Volpe is just done, you know, he's ready to, to be done with Pinocchio, but Spazzatura comes out of nowhere and, you know, fights Spazzatura and throws him off the cliff. I think they both end up all, everybody ends up in, in going off the cliff and falling into the abyss, um, which is where we're going to find Pinocchio meeting his, his final match, you know, and that is, you know, being swallowed by the beast, right? Um, and uh, yeah, it's, I just want to let you take it from there, man. Because like I said, as we come to this conclusion, like I've been excited to talk to you about, you know, this this final scene. Perfect. And I I think this is a really unique, really climax of all of the archetypal personal heroes' journeys, stories that we've encountered thus far. And as we get deeper in the story, it it resonates and connects with the idea when we get deeper into our own story and how the experience goes from the incorporation of the personal shadow and understanding the individual psyche to its moving and blending into the collective and actually where the individual moves to not only, you know, the personal incorporation of the self, like we were just speaking about, but there's an incorporation of collective archetypal energies that the hero is presented with. And this is a unique challenge because it's it's not just a personal experience. It's not just based off of an individual trauma or a strenuous thing that's happened in the past that causes pain. It's it's actually kind of beyond the the awareness of the personal. It's, it's part of a grander story. It's, it's part of the story of the evolution of consciousness in its entirety. And it's part of the larger lessons as a whole that we have to heal to gain this, you know, to gain the, the fruit of our spiritual realization. And so we approach this unique archetypal experience of the saving of the father. This is something that we see repeated in so many themes and so many stories, the saving of the father. Ultimately, this is the story of Star Wars. It's the idea of saving the father from the belly of the beast. And when we think of the beast here, we don't think of just one thing. It's not just a representation of one thing. The beast system is actually the result of an internal process that happens within an individual that actually creates this projection of a beast system into the collective. And it actually, we are, we become creators of pain and fear rather than love and truth, which is our, you know, our true reason for our incarnation. And so this beast system actually is the effect and the result of the personal individual losing personal 
contact and understanding of how the God force operates and expresses within. It's the ability of us actually divorcing this from ourselves and forgetting that we are actually a part of creation. The creator, what we call God, is not supposed to be seen as this distant figure of the past. When we see God in a limited understanding as his incarnation, just as Jesus, we see the life and the death of Jesus. And when we imagine God outside of us, when we, when we picture it as an external source of energy, we disconnect from the most important component of that relationship and of this study, because the God is within. The Father is within. It's not without. God is not this thing that's distant. It's not a man in the clouds with a beard. It's not somebody who lived in the body and then died. When we when we think of God as lived and as already came and as separate than ourself, lived, if we invert those words and we look at it backwards, is the devil. The devil is the forgetting that God is within you and that it can't die. And as you breathe, it breathes. As you see, it sees. As you feel, it feels. As you evolve, it evolves. And so the saving of your father from the belly of the beast, this is actually a connection to the true cosmic father and our journey to connect with that universal life force energy, what we speak about as the OG, the original generator, not the God that's presented as jealous or spiteful, not the God that actually was truly the representation of what we would look at as Saturn or in Gnostic mythology, the Demiurge. And this lesser God, depending on the spiritual school that you're being initiated in, is going to have it and different degrees of malice. And one, it kind of is there to make us find who the true God is. And in Gnosticism, we really kind of see it as this this byproduct of Sophia. It was a desire child where it believes that it is the true God. And it's something that we have to kind of overcome in this reality, not not attaching ourselves to it, but actually transcending and getting to the source of what it is the effect of. Even though this false God thinks it's the cause, it's truly the effect. Um, and that's what we have to work to. We have to get back to the causal factor of that life force energy and understand that it is it is illuminating through us. And this is difficult for the cosmic father compared to the divine mother, who is the other relationship of this sacred spiritual marriage of the cosmic father and the divine mother. And the mother, what we do is we, we, we look at the mother and its personal archetype. And we've spoke about this before as your personal mother. Well, we all might have had a personal mother. Some of them might have not been in our lives, but we know what that archetype represents in the physical. But as we approach archetypal incorporation, and as we go through this process of actualization, we're asked to connect to bigger macro representations 
of these personal archetypes as mother and father. And as we climb the ladder of mother, we get to Mother Earth. And this is a very recognizable symbol of the nurturing, life-giving energy that mothers provide. Um, just the caringness. And even though, you know, nature can be a scary place and there can be dangers, there's something when we're at peace with it that wakes something up inside of us that makes us truly feel alive. And so this is very much a representation of that life-giving, loving, nurturing energy. And it's not something that they could hide, where we're going to see that the Cosmic Father was actually kind of skewed and moved away from us. It's it's impossible to hide the Divine Mother. They even tried to hide it in modern-day, you know, more of our exoteric Christianity when they replaced the mother with the Holy Ghost. But, you know, and they took down the significance of Mary being the right hand to Jesus and a very special disciple that he shared um, very personal things with and a very sacred disciple. Well, it's, it's the right hand to all of us because, you know, we are sitting there at that Last Supper table and Virgo, the Virgin, is sitting to the right. And so we have this unique kind of connection, even if they try to hide the sacred feminine, she appears. She appears in art. She appears through the Renaissance. We didn't need to know that the feminine was the second component of the Trinity when we think of it as, as I think, so I feel, so I act. That feeling component, that feminine, intuitive, internal process we knew that was important before needing to even like be told that it was part of that trinity. We knew our emotions were important. The idea being we found Mary in the woods with Mother Nature before we maybe went back and learned the esoteric significance of what she actually represents inside of all of us. And so the mother will always kind of break through. The mother will always kind of come through. And we take it up to the next level of the Divine Mother, and we have the housing unit of all of creation. Um, and it's that nurturing space and container that will be the, that sets the limits in the organization so this universal life force from the Father can fill up that cup and we can actually have form and we can have reality. Um, and so when we look at the Divine Mother, even though her true essence to us and what that archetypal marriage means was hidden, she makes her way known. That's why Mary's never sweating when like Catholicism presented um, and kind of hit her in the past because she was just like, Oh, you can't hide me. I'm inside of all of you. And, you know, it's, I'm undeniable. You know, try to deny your emotions. It's, it's very difficult. You have to go through a very long stage of calcination and actually making yourself cold to deny your emotions. And so the personal blending with the divine mother and the sacred mother is a process that we all go through when we kind of climb these archetypal higher lessons from the personal to the collective, from the 
first four steps of alchemy to the latter three steps of alchemy. That's really the incorporation of the personal shadow with the collective shadow. And we use our experience to become the world's savior. And by healing ourselves, we begin to heal the world. So we might have to heal our relationship with that mother archetype. But there's there's ways if that mother wasn't there for us to see that expression. Like I said, it's what you feel in nature. It's what you feel at the ocean. Like you knew about the magic of Mother Earth before you were maybe told about it in this esoteric sense. And so the Divine Father is is a little different of a representation. We have that as our archetypal father that we that we might have in our lives or not. But it's that role of that masculine energy of you know, that parental marriage that comes through those. And again, remember, masculine does not have to be expressed through a man. It is also represented through females. We have both of these energies internally within us. And so that that divine father aspect, that divine masculine within us is either represented by our father, um, but it also has levels that rise above it. And the masculine when we take it up to the next level where the feminine represented mother earth, the masculine represents society and law and structure. And although there has been times in our, you know, vast human history that society was a, 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 um, a better representation of the universal natural laws. It worked to more keep those universal natural laws in place. Well, there's been a, a, a fragmentation that has happened from that, you know, especially as we moved from the metaphysical principles that guided our societies and we, and we've removed them and we've really attached ourselves to more materialistic principles. We've seen a decay in society to where it's not the representation of that cosmic father coming to earth to help guide us in our path to spiritual unfoldment. It's more seen as this decaying corruption, whether it's in, you know, the laws, whether it's in, um, the governments themselves, whether it, you know, between capitalism and the personal government and all this, the corruption, we should say, I guess we could say today, we've seen some decay. And so there's not a society figure to represent this divine masculine energy. We don't have a model to look at if we don't have a personal father, or even if we do, and we're trying to, you know, gain that understanding even deeper, we we have to kind of climb that and explore that. And we don't really have a, a positive example here to represent that with the divine masculine. And so there's confusion. Um, and so what we're kind of seeing here is that divine father is skewed. And if we even take it up the next level to that cosmic father energy, that too is skewed to us because of the presentation of this jealous, spiteful God that's presented to us in Orthodox religions. When truly, this is not that representation. It's, we have to save that cosmic father from its decaying 
image and expression that has been kind of conducted and as a result of the decaying society. And so this idea of saving the father from the belly of the beast is taking on this journey to truly find the true creator and accept fully and have a full realization that that creator is within us and we are part of the infinite and we are already whole. Um, it's this process is not us connecting the pieces to make ourselves whole, but it's truly the realization and the identification with our connection with creation. And so as we kind of go through this process and we've, we really start to learn the ultimate opportunity of healing i think in the end the 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 most important part is what you said about forgiveness and in the end that's what you witness you know pinocchio obviously self-sacrifices himself in order to get geppetto and um and spasatura out of the belly's mouth which they're about to be consumed again and he he you know ignites the 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 mind in order to you know kill the beast permanently and he wakes up in that that in between space and he finds himself you know just pressed for time for the first time ever because he realizes that it's not over yet he might have killed the beast but Geppetto I believe is also in danger and only has a limited amount of time before he's going to pass on and Pinocchio realizes not everybody has as many chances as I do to come back. <clears throat> And that's where he makes a deal and he makes a deal that's eternal. And he says, you know, I want to go back now. And she says, if you go back now, you'll never be able to come back again. And he says, that's, that's totally fine. So he realizes, you know, he'd rather have his father live than for him to have this sort of, you know, ability to come and go as he pleases uh, in the physical and spiritual form. And, you know, that sort of surprises the demigod or the, not the demigod, but the, the um, archetype that's sort of presented there in, in the in-between world with Pinocchio. And she tells him, she's like, look, this is, this is it. This is it for you. And he says, I don't care. I want to go back. And he goes back, saves his father. But in between saving his father, he dies his last time. And that's where you see, again, that the, the relationship with forgiveness take place because you have Geppetto, you know, crying and he finally calls Pinocchio his son and he begs for Pinocchio to come back. And I know that everybody else makes it to the sand. Everybody makes it to the shoreline. Um, but the only thing that washes up on the shore is Pinocchio's lifeless body. And this is where everybody kind of has their, their lesson. Um, you know, this is where, where everybody sort of comes and does a full circle. And when the angel that gave Pinocchio his life, witnesses Geppetto, you know, crying for his son yet again. The angel says, you know, there's nothing I can do. The boy can't come back. You know, that's what's done is done. And that's when Sebastian decides to also step up. You know, we, we found in the very first episode, Sebastian was always looking out for himself. But this is the time where he also decides to step in and say, no, you told me that if I taught this boy right from wrong and was able to make this boy into a decent human being or a decent being or, or a decent soul that you could grant me a wish and the wish that he, you know, obviously 
uh, has fulfilled is for Pinocchio to come back to life. And so I know we can continuously break every single scene down, but I think that all ties into what you said um, prior to this little breakdown towards the end of the importance of forgiveness and the separation from the father and son and what it really means to have that eternal connection, um, not just with the actual physical father and Pinocchio, but far beyond that. And all characters in that scene have that fulfillment, have that realization and have that um, understanding of its importance in order for everyone to live a life of, you know, blissfulness and joy, you know, is, is to be selfless and, and understand what the true sacrifice is. And so again, it's a wonderful story. I know that there's probably a lot of listeners out there who are like, oh my God, you guys just sort of broke that down so quickly. But the overarching theme is a lot to do with what you said with the belly of the beast and the understanding of the eternal father. And so there's so many ways to break down these stories. I think it's a beautiful story uh, in itself, even before Del Toro did his rendition. Um, and I think that's something we need to kind of keep in mind the whole the whole way through this breakdown is that it's it's a theme that we can all not only connect to, but it lends a lot of beautiful secrets to us about this journey that we all embark on in, in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. And the the ultimate release of the personal aims of the ego that Sebastian represents. You know, the idea of he's not doing it for fame, he's not doing it for notary, he's not doing it for money. It's not about now everybody knowing my story, but the understanding of the story and it, how it plays a role in that. And, you know, when we have all these characters together on the shore, it represents the the different areas of our consciousness that that yearns to gain maturity through this five sense reality experience. You know, it's not just the emotional intelligence that we grow right. here. It's not just the analytical capacity. It's also, you know, aligning our actions and making sure that our actions align to our thoughts and our emotions, connecting to those dark parts of our consciousness. And so ultimate sacrifice that is made by Sebastian and, you know, that's what this ultimately takes is this is this sacrifice of the world savior and the idea that we sacrifice to this to this idea that you know we are here to be barriers and um sharers of this universal conscious as it works through us and so yeah a lovely story to kind of think about and to meditate on and to think about our role where we are in this journey and how we kind of come back and back at it again as we kind of climb this evolutionary ladder, as we climb Jacob's ladder. And so it's so interesting. The tree we fell from in the very beginning is the same tree that we climb back up to to get connected to this pineal gland, which is going to connect us to the spiritual nature that is so evident throughout the story. Awesome, man. Well, this has been a wonderful uh, journey with you, man. Uh, not just, you know, being able to have these conversations with you as for usual, but with this breakdown of the movie, you know, you get to witness the movie for your own, for, you know, you get to take it for what it is from your, um, from your angle. And I get to do the same, but together we sort of cast this different, um, collective, uh, not even perspective, but this sort of idea that, um, you know, has a common language between the two of us that I think is a true, a true privilege because I can't do this with everyone else. And so I thank you for your time. And I thank all the listeners for your patience. We have so much to do before we uh, wrap up these, these final episodes and the wheel of um, 
on the astrological wheel and the journey through uh, the Fool and Hercules and so much that we've already mentioned in the whole last year. So I know we're coming to this conclusion, but this breakdown of Pinocchio was, you know, a nice a nice change of pace, but also just as profound as anything else I'd like to discuss with you about in these topics. So I thank you and I thank everyone else out there. Absolutely. I guess in, until next time. Until next time, my friend.